I bring you greetings from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am the voice of one, crying in the wilderness of this world and life. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make every great path straight. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We shall be beginning a new discussion in this broadcast where we'll be looking at the second foundational doctrine of the Christian faith, having just concluded the first, which is repentance from dead works. The second one is faith toward God. But before we do that, let us briefly review our last discussion, which was titled The Dross of Silver. Now, silver is a metal that is very useful as an ornament, as jewelry for the making of commemorative coins, goblets, shields, and so on and so forth. However, to get silver to the point of usability, it must be separated from the metals that have alloyed with it in the ore. These metals are called the dross of silver. They are bronze, tin, iron, and lead. They are useful metals in other aspects, but sadly, they make silver to be dull, dense, unusable, and unfit for the silversmith. So that the silversmith has to purge the silver ore in a furnace to burn up the dross of silver, which are the impurities of silver. And that way, he can get the pure silver, which he can now use in doing the things that he wants to do. If silver is not purified, you have something that is unusable, something that is unreliable, something that is of no value, really. Now, we liken that to the case of the believer in Christ. Every believer in Christ is like the ore of silver, one that has been dug up raw, where you have the old man still bound in him. And so there has to be that separation of the old man from this Christian. In doing that work of separation, which we term to be sanctification, there has to be the purging of the old leaven, as it were, the old nature, along with its passions and its affections. It is only after this purging has taken place that the man is fit and usable to do good works by God. We noted that when the silversmith can see his image in the molten silver, then he knows that the silver is pure, that the entire ore has been purged out. In the same way, when Christ's image is formed in us, when Christ sees his image in us, then the purging process of removing the dross from our lives, the dross of evil, the dross of wickedness, the dross of the old man, the dross of the old affections and ambitions of envy, of pride, arrogance, homosexuality, of adultery, idolatry, prostitution, and so on and so forth, is removed. That is when we can really say that, yes, this fellow is now fit and useful unto every good work for the master. And where this doesn't take place, we find people who have been born again going back to engage in dead works, things that lead to death. However, we noted that sometimes when the silversmith is purging the silver ore, he keeps purging and keeps purging, keeps looking and keeps looking. And after so long a time, he discovers that he cannot see his image in the silver. After all the purging and refining, doesn't see his image. He knows that that silver is not going to be of any use. So he tosses it away. When you go to the store or shop of a silversmith, you find so many silver pieces on the ground. They are what they call reprobate silver, unfit silver, unusable silver, unpurifiable silver. Likewise, for the believer, when he is being purged, when he's being sanctified, and the image of Christ is not being formed, over time, he is considered reprobate, 
unfit, unusable, unpurifiable, disqualified from being used by God. He can do things though. He can preach. He can start a church. He can write Christian books. He can do so many things, but he is unfit. He cannot be used by God. And if God is not the one using him, everything he is doing is dead works. We concluded by noting that we have a choice. It is either we submit ourselves humbly to the Holy Spirit's working and be prepared for every good work, or we continue to live as we like and be discarded and considered unfit and unusable by the master. The choice is really yours. But note that at the end of this age, or when you leave this world, you are going to stand before the Lord and give an account of what you did and did not do while you were here on the earth. Moving on from here, we want to go on to the second foundational doctrine, trusting God that by now we have had enough time to consider what we've been doing, whether they are good works or dead works, where they are dead works to have repented and to have turned around and to change to wanting to do good works. Now we move to the second foundational doctrine of the Christian faith, and that is faith toward God. And we shall be commencing our discussion with an introduction of sort. And I've given this a subject title of faith in general and in scripture. Faith in general and in scripture. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 is where we are looking at the foundational doctrines of Christian faith. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. We are supposed to be going to perfection. But you recall when we began this series on that back to basics, we told the story of a football team that went to play a game and they were roundly beaten. And the next day when they went for training, the coach started by holding up the ball and telling them that this is a ball. It is round. It is made of leather and air is pumped in it. You have 11 people pass aside. One person is a goalkeeper. The others are players and they play with their feet not with their hands. The only person who's authorized to play with the hands is the goalkeeper, and that is within his penalty box. And he went on and on and on, meaning that the way they played showed that they didn't know what football was about. When we look at Christians today, it's clear that a number of people don't even know what Christianity is about. So we had to go back to basics, and we looked at repentance from dead works. Now we are going to the second one, which is faith towards God. It is important for us to note here that what we are teaching is beneficial to those who are already born again. Those who have surrendered their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who consider the Lord their Lord and their Savior. And who have, as a matter of fact, repented from dead works. It is after we have repented from dead works that we can begin to speak about faith towards God. The word faith finds application in the secular as well as in scripture. And that's why we give you the title, Faith in General and in Scripture. Although our goal is scriptural faith, yet a look at secular faith is important so that we can set clear distinctions between the two. What many of us call faith is actually not scriptural faith. It is secular faith. And as we go along, it will become clear. And the idea is that we understand that there is a difference between faith in general and faith in scripture, faith in the secular and faith that is scriptural. Faith in general could mean or imply having an assurance of someone or something. It could mean believing in someone or something. 
It could mean having confidence in someone or having confidence in something. It could mean being dependent on someone or being dependent in something. It could mean relying on someone or relying on something. Holding on to someone, holding on to something. Leaning on someone or leaning on something. Resting on someone or resting on something. Trusting in someone or trusting in something. It could mean being convinced that someone is who he or she say he or she is. Or being convinced that something is what it is said to be. It could be being fully persuaded about someone or something. So when you look at what we've described in general, we'll find certain synonyms of faith that is applicable in general and in scripture. Assurance, belief or believe, confidence, dependence or to depend on, to rely on someone or reliance, holding on to, leaning on, resting upon, trusting in or to trust someone, conviction, persuasion or full persuasion. So faith in general is directed at someone or something. Let's look at some verse of scripture and then we'll explain what we're trying to say here. Second Kings chapter 7 verse 1 and verse 2. Now there had been a famine in Israel and Elisha was blamed for the famine. The king had actually sent somebody to go and take off Elisha's head but that had been stopped. So in chapter 7 the first verse and second verse. Then Elisha said Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a seer of flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned, please note that, an officer on whose hand the king leaned, answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could these things be? And he, that is Elijah, said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now, whilst not going into the depth of the scripture, I want us to note that the king leaned on this officer. This man could have been his advisor or his minister for agriculture or for economics or whatever. The king depended on this man. So in general terms, the king had faith in this man's authority. He had faith in this man's brilliance, in his intellect, in his intelligence, and so on and so forth. That's why the man was his advisor. And so when a word came from the Lord that the famine would end and that there would be abundance on the streets of Samaria, the man looked into his economic books and said to Elisha, even if God were to open the windows of heaven, <laughs> these things cannot be. Because if... The famine ends tomorrow, for example. We are going to have to start to do some imports. We are not going to be able to plant and reap the thing. So we have to import food from wherever we are going to import the food. It means that we are going to have to open letters of credit. We are going to have to talk to nations. Ships will have to begin to set sail. So it is not possible for it to happen in 24 hours. Even if we were to give the farmers fertilizer, we will still have to allow the things to grow and bring forth food. So the man had the basis on which he was speaking, but the king had faith in that man. So that is secular faith. He trusted his advisor. That's why the man was his advisor. Now in Psalm 20 verse 7, the A part, it says some trust in chariots and some in horses. There are people who put their trust in armory, guns, tankers, military weapons, nuclear warheads, and so on. So that's what he's saying here. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. 
In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 31, again, the A part. We are just trying to draw out faith in the secular, looking at the scriptures. It says the horse is prepared for the day of battle. So there are equipment that nations depend on. There was a time, there was this talk about an intercontinental ballistic missile. And it was said to be able to pinpoint its target. And they push the button and it flies. There was also the Patriot missile. Then I think nations now have defense shields where if a missile is coming in, they'll be able to intercept the missile and neutralize it before it is able to do any damage. So nations trust in these things. And because of that, there was a time when there was an arms race. And there still is an arms race, actually. Today, there are drones. There are even pocket drones that nations trust in. They can put it in their pocket and activate it and use their smartphones to see what the drone is showing them. And sometimes fire weapons from the drone. Now, the enemy will think that what he's seeing is an insect. It doesn't know that what he's dealing with is an enemy. So there are nations that depend on those things. These are the faith in general or secular faith. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 31, actually see that you have to begin in verse 30. Or sorry, let me take it from verse 29. Verse 29 and then 31. Verse 29 says, there are three things which are majestic in pace. Yes, four, which are stately in walk. If you go to verse 31, the last uh, one in verse 31 says, and a king whose troops are with him. So the king is majestic. Why? Because his troops are with him. He's dependent on the troops. His trust is in the troops. His faith, as it were, is in the troops. So people generally exhibit faith. In the secular, when they, for example, eat in a restaurant, you go into the restaurant, you don't ask to see the kitchen, you don't ask to see the chef, you don't ask to witness how the meals are prepared. Even in the eateries that now have open kitchens, nobody really looks at the kitchen. They just go and say, please give me this, please give me this. They pick it up and go and sit down and eat. They have faith in that restaurant. In fact, when a new restaurant opens in town, you see a long queue of people. It's a new restaurant. They don't even know anything about it, but because it's new, everybody's excited. They go there. They have faith in that restaurant. Then we have faith when people board a bus or some form of transportation. We don't know the driver. We don't know the state of the bus. We don't look at the tires. We don't know when last it was serviced, especially on the African continent, where all kinds of things would go for public transportation. But we board a bus anyway. And if we are doing interstate travel, that's a long distance travel by bus. We even make phone calls and tell our friends on the other side, our families in the port where we're going to. We say, look, we've boarded the bus and we're on our way. We'll be there by such and such a time. We have faith. It's in the bus and the driver and the roads, as bad as the roads may be. We exhibit faith when we board an aircraft. I'm yet to find somebody who goes to the airport to buy a ticket, who asks for the aircraft maintenance history, who asks to see the pilot before he boards the plane. And even when the plane is being boarded on the tarmac, I am yet to find one passenger who leaves the queue to check the tires of the aircraft, to do all the checks that the aircraft engineers are doing. We just board this plane, we sit down there and we make calls. Those who are returning home, they tell their drivers, I'll be at the airport in about an hour's time. So make sure that you are there. Start leaving the house now to be at the airport to pick me up. We're exercising faith, exercising secular faith. We exercise secular faith. When we go to the hospital, I have a small ailment. I rush to the hospital. I ask to see the doctor. He puts some machines around me and checks my body and comes up with the diagnosis and says, this is what you have. I believe the doctor. He gives me drugs. I go and take them. I remember a case where somebody had been treated for cancer and they gave him drugs. 
He went home and took the drugs for one full month. It turned out that they gave him drugs to treat ulcer and not the cancer. He had faith in that doctor. He had faith in the hospital. He didn't even bother to read anything. You, have you seen doctors and their handwritings on prescription? You can't even read it. You can't even understand it. So we just take it to pharmacy. Whether a pharmacy interprets it correctly or not, we don't know. We just take the drugs and we go home. Whatever it is, we take whatever they tell us to do. We have faith. We have faith when we take up a job. We just sign up for a job. We don't know how they treated. We don't know anything about it. We don't even know if we will be paid at the end of the month. We borrow money to commute to this new job. That's faith in general. We exercise faith when we elect people into office. We don't know them from anywhere. We have nothing, no knowledge of them. They just come and tell us one thing or the other. We go and we vote. We vote for them. I tell people a lot of times that the basis on which you are voting for someone now is not the basis on which he's going to perform for the four years or whatever term is. Because there are situations that have not arisen today that you are voting for him that will arise in the middle. So how do you know if you will be able to deal with it? And so you have a situation where after elections, people don't even allow the elected officers to govern. They begin to complain and to murmur. But they voted them in. They had faith in those people. We also have faith when we take advice from others, from our friends, from family members. I've seen situations where some ladies have been advised by other ladies on how to stand up to their husbands. The people who are advising these young ladies to stand up to their husbands, when you go to their homes, you see them cowing and kneeling to their own husbands. But they've gone to give false advice. And yet people take up this advice and they end up ruining their marriages. So we find that in general, there is faith around us. People exercising faith. But what kind of faith is it? There is a distinction between faith in general and faith in scripture. What distinguishes faith in general and faith in scripture is the someone that faith is directed towards. In the secular, like the examples I give, the fellow either has faith in himself or has faith in the transport service or in the restaurant or in the adverts that they saw or whatever in the organization and so on and so forth. People trust experts. They trust an employer. They trust the executives. They trust employees. They trust so many people all around. We believe the marketers when they tell us this works. We believe the pharmaceutical companies when they tell us something about the drugs. We believe these things. It's faith, but it's secular faith. When it comes to non-humans, we put our trust in pieces of equipment, furniture. We don't know how furniture was made. We just bring it home. We pay millions. We bring it home and we sit on them. We don't even know if anybody forgot scissors or anything. No, we just sit. We trust. We have faith in machinery. We have faith in an idea. People invest in ideas. It's called venture capital. They put millions of dollars together to fund somebody's idea. The guy has sold the idea to them. They fund it. They have faith in that guy, in his idea. People exercise faith in an organization. They have faith in physical strength. They look at a man, they size up those things and say, this guy is going to beat this other guy in a boxing tournament. Or they look at football. They look at how much money has been spent on each player. They look at the strengths and so of each player. And they look at the manager, the team, the history, and so on and so forth. And they say, look, this team is going to beat this team. And people go and bet on the basis of these projections. This faith. We have faith in physical size. We look at a church that is running maybe five services all around the world, and it's probably ministering to 200 to 250,000 people, and we say God must be in that church. It's faith. But it's faith in the size. We look at a smaller church, and we say, don't worry, those are just jokers. Nothing is happening there. What are we having faith in? In the size. We have faith in well-laid-out plans. We've seen the plans. 
We say, this is going to work. We have faith in it. We put our trust in that plan. We have faith in strategy. We strategize. We say the enemy is going to come this way or that way. The competition is going to come this way or that way. Companies sit down at the end of the year. They set up SWOT analysis and so many other things. New, newer ideas are coming up every day in the world of business. And they come up and they predict the next year and how the next year would go. They have faith, but they never factor in God. In scripture, faith is always, always, always directed at God. No more, no less. That is what marks the faith of a believer in Christ from secular faith. Or should I put it this way? That is what distinguishes scriptural faith from secular faith. Scriptural faith is in God and God alone. Secular faith is in any other thing. The believer in Christ has God as the direction and object of his faith. In Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6, we know the scripture very well. We recite it a lot. So he answered and said to me, that is an angel speaking to Zechariah here. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, which people have faith in, not by power or effort or energy, which people have faith in, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This building will be done by my spirit, not by your economic purse, not by the workforce that you have, but by my spirit. Then we go back to Psalm 20 that we read, you know, we read just one portion there. Now we go back and read it in full. We'll read the whole verse now. Psalm 20 verse 7. It says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Or we will trust. We will depend. So some may trust in horses. Some may trust in chariots. But we trust in God. We go back again to Proverbs chapter 21 verse 31. Again, we read that in part. It says the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. It doesn't matter that the other people have put their trust in their horses prepared for battle. Deliverance is coming from the Lord for the Christian. Scriptural faith is always, always on God. It's never on anything else. It's not on the man of God. It's not in the name of the church. It's not in the doctrine of the church. It is in God. In Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10, the Bible says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. That is, it's a defense. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower for the righteous. When he runs into God, he's safe. He's protected. Another distinguishing factor between secular faith and scriptural faith is the source of that faith. In the secular, the source of the faith is what the experts have said, is what strategies they've put on, on ground, the plans and so many things they've done. But when it comes to the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, his faith, the source of his faith, is in the word of God. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, the Bible says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So my faith is based on what I am hearing. And my hearing is in the word of God. So my faith in God emanates from the word of God. Now when we talk of the word of God, I'm sure at some point that we're going to deal with it in some detail. We're not just talking of the written word of God as we have in the Bible. We're talking of the person that is the word of God. The Bible says in John chapter 1 from verse 1, In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was with God in the beginning. There was not anything made that was made without him. 
He says, in him was life. And that life is the light of men. And the light shines in darkness. And darkness cannot comprehend or overcome it, or overshadow it, or envelop it, or encompass it, or emasculate it. And in verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, that God who spoke in ancient times through the prophets is in this last days speaking to us through his son. He's the word. He's the spokesperson, the spokesman, if we can use that expression, of the Godhead. He spoke and it was done. He said and it was established. The source of faith for the Christian is the word of God. And thence the second foundation, faith toward God. Not faith toward a man. Not faith toward a pastor. Not faith toward a general overseer. Not faith toward a church. But faith toward God. I find some churches, when people go to those churches and they say they want to make this a church home, they begin to teach them about the ethics in the church rather than teach them about God. If you put your trust in anyone or anything except God, you will be disappointed. If your trust is secular, if your faith is secular, your dependence is secular, your reliance is secular, you are going to be disappointed. And many have been disappointed. In Job chapter 8, verse 13 to 15, this is Bildad speaking to Job. Many of the things that Job's friends said, by the way, were scripturally correct. It's just that they didn't apply to Job because they didn't have knowledge of what Job was going through. They were quoting scriptures all right, but in application, it didn't apply to Job. That's the problem. But it was right. What they said was scripturally correct. Job chapter 8, verse 13 to 15. So are the parts of all who forget God and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish, whose confidence shall be cut off. And whose trust is a spider's web. Can you imagine somebody trusting in the web of a spider? It could catch an insect, but not a human being. You can't even use it to catch fish. In verse 15, it says, He leans on his house, but it does not stand. He holds it fast, but it does not endure. You can't rely on this. So those who put their trust in anything apart from God run into trouble. They are disappointed. In Psalm 146, verse 3 and verse 4. Psalm 146, verse 3. And verse 4, do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man, in whom there is no help. There's no help from man. Nothing is coming from a man. He says, his spirit departs. He returns to his earth. In that very day, his pains perish. Are you trusting in man? The Bible is telling us that the man that you are trusting does not even know if he will be alive tomorrow. It is possible that you go to a friend. He loves you. He wants to give you the help that you want. So he says to you, look, come tomorrow. I'll write you a check. And he has the money. He has the check. It's just that the checkbook is not with him presently. So he says, come tomorrow, I'll write you a check. And then you go to his office tomorrow and you find everybody crying and you wonder what's going on. He's dead. He didn't even have the power to sustain himself. Yet you relied on him to give you a check. There are many people who put their trust in some presidents, some heads of state, only for those people to die in office and their entire hope crushed. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the patched places in the wilderness, in a salt land which is not inhabited. Cursed are such a people who put their trust in man. Verse 7. It says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For it shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear 
when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. When a man's trust is in God, even in the famine, he's confident that God will take care of him. He's not confident that anybody else will take care of God. If you are a believer, a Christian, your faith is in God, should be in God, not in what you are thinking. But in God, he will take care of you. He will sustain you. The Bible says, even in a famine, he will sustain you. The man whose trust is in another man is already cursed. That's what the Bible tells us. When your faith, your trust, your reliance, your dependency is on man, you'll be disappointed. You'll be put to shame. You're not likely to make any progress. It is only faith in God and in his word that does not disappoint. In Romans chapter 9, verse 33. As it is written, behold... I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Who is that rock of offense? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Jews, a rock of offense. To the Greeks or the Gentiles or the unbelievers, he is foolishness. They can't understand salvation in Christ. But to those who are being saved, Christ is the salvation of God, is the power of God. It says whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. In chapter 10, verse 11, the Bible says, For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. But let me read that scripture in Isaiah because it's called from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Isaiah 28, verse 16. It reads, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. That is, you will not be impatient. You will not be rushing. You will not be anxious. You will be at ease. You will be in peace. You will not be disappointed. So let me summarize as we come to a close what we're discussing here. There is secular faith and there is scriptural faith. Many of us, unbeknownst to us, are believing in secular faith. I'm going to tell you a story, my personal story. I made an investment based on my understanding that a very good friend of mine was going to be able to pull some transactions my way and that from the transactions, I'll be able to pay off the monies I was putting into this other transaction. I was so sure of it because this is a friend of mine. He's sitting in a place where he can do the transaction for me. So I was confident. So I borrowed money to do some travels and see what I could put together. Sadly, nothing happened. Why? I trusted in a man. I was disappointed and in debt. Why? Because I trusted in a man. Many of us in church, our trust is in a man. When you hear people praying in the name of the God of Pastor so-and-so, their trust is in that man, not in God. Because the Lord Jesus Christ said, whatsoever you ask in my name, I will give you. Then people come and say, I'm praying in the name of the God of pastor so-and-so, the name of the God of bishop so-and-so. Their faith is secular. It's not scriptural. They will be disappointed. They will be put to shame. When your faith is secular, you see, they have the same names, the same system, but the object of faith, scriptural faith, is God. The object of secular faith is in any other thing. Sometimes our faith is manufactured from our hearts. It's not what God said. The source, the origin of that faith is not in the word of God. That's why I keep telling people, don't tell me what your pastor said. Tell me what the Bible says. Today we hear Christians say, my pastor says this. My pastor says this. And I know they will quote 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 20. Let me read it so that we can see what is being said there. And um, I'll, I'll try and give a background to that so that we can understand what is being said. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 20. 
So they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. So that's what a lot of people say. Believe his prophets. That is true. It's scripturally correct. But application is where the problem is. In this particular instance, they had a fast. Because three nations had come against Judah. So they prayed. And in the course of the prayer, God spoke through a Levite and said, The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. Stand still and see the victory that God will give to you. Fantastic. So the next day, when they went to the wilderness, the army was going in front as usual. So Jehoshaphat says, come back. Let us believe God will be established. Let us believe his prophet, that young man who spoke what God said. Let's believe him. We will prosper. So army, stay back. Let's set singers in front. That is what happened. So they set singers that were not carrying any arms or anything. Today we talk of praise will give us victory and everything. But what was happening here was Jehoshaphat was trying to put the army behind so there will be no temptation for anybody to carry a weapon because God had said, this battle is mine. He doesn't need help from you. So Jehoshaphat puts people who would not be able to fight anything in front. He says, be singing. That's all. The Bible says as they were singing, the Lord laid ambushments and caused the nations to fight against themselves and then each man from one nation, they began to until all of them died. So that is where that scripture came from. Jehoshaphat, in quoting that scripture, was believing God and the word that that boy spoke coming from God. So I ask the people who quote the scripture to support the fact that they are prophets. Did God speak to you or are you just trying to manipulate the people to believe you? We have a lot of secular faith in the church of God. A pastor gets up and says God has told him to build an auditorium and then he starts. And he begins to raise money and begins to put pressure on people. He says, don't worry, if you don't have the money now, that's okay. Just put a pledge. And people say pledge by faith. That pledge by faith is also a secular faith. In secular faith, we just believe something and we go and do it. Until we see the wrong end of it. So we must have that distinction in mind. That's why we started with this topic, faith in general and in scripture. Our focus is on scriptural faith. So we summarize now that faith has secular and scriptural application. The secular application has nothing really to do with God. And those who hold such faith shall be disappointed because God did not say. Today we have so many people prophesying one thing or the other. There was a time when God told Israel that they were going on exile for 70 years. They didn't believe it. The prophets there in captivity were prophesying that those don't unpack. You are going back soon. You are going back soon. So God told Jeremiah, you better send a word to them. You need to go and read Jeremiah chapter 9, 29. It says, go and tell them to marry, to give in marriage. They will be there for 70 years. I know the thoughts that I have towards them. I know the plans I have towards them. Tell them to increase in that place and not to decrease. At the appropriate time, I'll return them. Why 70 years? God said for 490 years after they left Egypt and entered into the promised land, they never gave the land one year of rest. They were supposed to give every seven years a year of rest. And so for 490 years, that is 70 Sabbaths. They did not keep it. And God said, I want this land to rest for 70 years out so that the land can rest. The scriptural application of faith is always directed at God. And those who trust God will never, never be disappointed. You cannot put your trust in God and be made ashamed. It is possible that in the beginning, it will look like nothing. But ultimately, you will not be ashamed. 
The time has come for the church to get back to believing God. Some people build churches because they heard that somebody else built. I heard the story of a man who went to minister in the church, saw the building, was excited. And while he sat down there, he said to himself, we can do this also. So he went back to his church and challenged them and said, we need to build something. They got money together. They put up a building for, you know, he did a mortgage. They put up a building, the church building. When that building was put up, come and see the crowd that came. Actually, they came to see the building. They didn't come to worship God. So he thought with this crowd coming in, they'll be able to pay for the building. The guy was frustrated because the money didn't come. They continued to pay and to realign the payments. Then I had another story of an organization, a Christian organization, that had been using a hotel to do their work. They had an office in the hotel. And from time to time, they used the hotel room, some conference rooms for their programs. Then one day, somebody informed them, this hotel is going to shut down because it's not making money. And we want to sell it off. The banks want to sell it off. But I'm telling you because maybe you guys want to put a bid. They had been trying to build their own structure. And so they went to pray. And God told them that, well, go ahead and bid for the hotel. In fact, as a matter of fact, God did not ask them to do that other one they were doing. They just did it. So they did their calculations. They had estimated $8 million or so for the new project. They had already expended about $6 million on land, on clearing. And because there was now a case in court on legal fees, they had only $2 million left. So they put in a bid for $2 million. The hotel was worth far, far more than that. And of course, people were wondering that why would anybody take that bid from you? Because, I mean, it's nothing. $2 million compared to about $100 million worth of asset. But interestingly, on the day they were going to open the bid, guess what? There was only one bid. Their bid, $2 million. When the bank opened the bid and it was $2 million, the bank said, well, if it's even hard to sell the thing, we better sell it to the people who are going to give us the money. So they called them and said, come and pay. And they went to the bank and said, well, we are going to pay, but you have to give us a mortgage against the purchase. So the bank had to give them another $2 million to buy the property from the bank. And that's how they owned that property till today. That property is in the United States in Hawaii. That is faith at work. It seemed ridiculous, but God was with them and God paid it through. That's the difference between scriptural faith and secular faith. Secular faith, you are sweating. You will not be able to sleep. You'll be anxious. You'll be running from pillar to post. You'll be running everywhere. You will make phone calls. You will get people to pledge. That is why you find many churches, all they preach about is money, 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 money. Because they've gone to get themselves involved in projects that God did not ask them to get involved in. My prayer is that we will change and become scriptural in our work with God. By the grace of God, next week, we shall meet again and we shall press forward and discuss some more things on faith towards God.